It's me again. Um, we are, uh, we're going to continue today. Uh, I usually introduce myself, but I already did that like five minutes ago, uh, just because it's going to make me feel weird. My name is Joey Sedlock. I'm a member here at Sulphur Community Church. And uh, today we're going to continue uh, our series that's going to take up uh, pretty much the entire year of, of 2020. That's our, our Crushed Head and Bruised Hill series, where, where uh, what we're doing is we're moving through uh, the entire story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and we are, we are showing how the Bible at every part points back to Christ. It points us in the Old Testament forward to Christ. Of course, in the New Testament, it shows us Jesus, and then in the later letters, points us back to Christ, right, and then to his his full uh, points us forward to his his second coming, as we will see in in Revelation, and so that's that's what we're moving through. If you go to our website after every sermon, uh, you go to our, our resources messages tab. You can uh, download this guide where we we provide a guide every Sunday afternoon that kind of goes deeper than we are than we're able to up here uh, during the sermon. Uh, and, and, and allows you to study this scripture on your own, not just take my word for it, which is always a really good idea. Study it with your family, study it with your small group, study it by yourself. Uh, and that's a resource that we're really happy to provide kind of throughout this whole thing to keep us focused and keep us moving. Uh, today, we're going to find ourselves uh, in, in Exodus chapters 1 through 13. And that's, that's a lot, right? It's not as much as my man David, but it's a lot for me. And it's kind of, I kind of feel uncomfortable handling that much scripture. I'm typically a two-verse kind of guy. I go 45 minutes on two verses. I kind of freak out with 13 chapters. Uh, and, and, and like David said last week, it's probably not that great of an idea for you to actually try to follow me because I have to move quickly through a lot of this stuff. So I'm not even going to give you references for a lot of things. Just kind of kind of sit back, listen, and when we slow down and camp out in certain parts, I'll let you know where we are, okay? And so uh, I'm going to pray for us real quick. Go ahead and get this started. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we are, uh, we are humbled, Lord. Uh, I pray that, that worship has softened our hearts, that, is, that has made our, our weeks, however busy they may have been, however uh, tumultuous they may have been, has, has turned our hearts to you, Lord. And that our everyday struggles, though you care about them, momentarily fade away as we, as we look toward you, Lord. I pray that you open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, and open our hearts to receive the word that you have for us today. Lord, I love you, I praise you, and I pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. So, let's say you're having a conversation with me and, and you're telling me uh, things about your life. You're telling me maybe about some brokenness, maybe about some things that you want and everything that you want, everything that, is, that has gone wrong in your life, everything that, is, that your heart desires, I tell you, I can give you. I can give you things. I can, I can be the source of your happiness. I can be the source of your joy. I can be, I can be the source of everything you want. I can do that for you. What would happen is I think you would start to grow a little bit skeptical, right? Because you would, you'd begin to wonder, how can I do these things? And the short answer is, I can't. I don't have the ability to be everything you desire, to satisfy all of your desires. And the reason for that is, I'm limited, right? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a guy. I'm just, I'm just one dude. I, I can't do all those things. And what's interesting is we, we apply that to God as well, right? Where God actually does make us those promises. Not that he'll give you everything you want, but that he is everything you actually desire. That he is the source of, of actual happiness. We are temporarily confused when we think we find joy outside of him. But what he promises is that he is everything that we actually want. He is what our hearts desire. He is what we are missing and, I, and as we took our trip through, through the 50 chapters of Genesis, we saw that over and over again, right? God has, God has made these promises to his people that he will be their God, that they will be his people, that he will give them land, that he will make Abraham a great nation. And that, and that promise just keeps getting reiterated and reiterated and reiterated all the way back to the Garden of Eden where he says, I will provide a snake crusher for you. Now, his heel will be bruised, 
but the snake's head will be crushed. And as we've seen uh, specifically in the story of Abraham, some of those promises were found laughable. They laughed, and sometimes we laugh at God, right? But what helps us get around those promises, what helps us have faith and believe in those promises of God, of course, is that the fact that God is sovereign. God is infinite where we are finite. God is sovereign as he, is, he controls all. He does all and whatever he pleases actually happens. We see that in creation. We see that, uh, we see that throughout the story of, of Abraham. We see that throughout the story of Noah. We see that throughout really all of Genesis, right? And what we're about to see is probably the biggest flex in the whole Old Testament, and that's the story of the Exodus. The story of God delivering his people out of Egypt, and over and over and over again, the Lord is going to say, I am God. No one stands in my way. Nothing stands in my way. I am faithful, and I will fulfill every promise I made. And so that's what we're going to take a look at in the first 13 chapters, and we're going to start in a really good place. It's called the beginning, right? So Exodus 1, verse 1, This is what it says. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, uh, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, right? And so that's, if you took that and you, and you added that right after the last verse of Genesis, it wouldn't even miss a beat, right? Because Exodus is picking up exactly where Genesis left off. But in verse 8, in verse 8, we get to see a bit of a shift, and we're, and we're going to talk about that for just a few moments, right? Because in verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh storehouses, Pithom and Ramses, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them slaves or worked them as slaves. Right? And so what we see here is there's a very big time gap in between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And that time gap is actually 400 years. 400 years has passed. And in that 400 years, Israel has gone from from being led by Joseph, the second in control, only to Pharaoh, to being slaves. But they have multiplied from 70 persons to to an entire nation. And it seems like God got half his promise, right? I'm going to make you a mighty nation, but a mighty nation of slaves. I, I, I reread Genesis, not the whole thing, of course, but I didn't, I didn't see that in the promises. I didn't see you're going to be a great nation of slaves in Genesis. But here's what I did see. I did see that this is part of the plan that God is still sovereign, that God is still in control. And in Genesis 15, starting in verse 13, God already told Abraham that they would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, right? He says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation and that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So this is, this is kind of the first statement that God is still in control. The, the fact that Israel has been in this period of long suffering of, of 400 years, generation after generation after generation of just slavery and brutal treatment, God is still in control, 
Israel is in a period of long suffering. And that kind of lands oddly on us in 2020, doesn't it? A period of long suffering. Right? Because in, in 2020, if your drive through don't move like Chick-fil-A, I ain't going. I ain't trying to suffer for 20 minutes, get a mediocre hamburger, right? Like, like that's, and, and that's, that's funny, right? But at the same time, that's true. How well do we suffer in 2020? Like, like how much food do we eat that's absolutely garbage just because it's fast? We ain't even, quote unquote, suffering through making a meal. And at the same time, there's those of us in the room have truly suffered for years, maybe even for decades decades, right? Suffered through childlessness, suffered through uh, 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 singleness, loneliness, depression. Some of us have struggled with these things for years. And God's people have suffered harshness for 400 years. Let's go back to 1620. Whatever's happening in the world, it's 1620 to 2020. That's, that's a big gap in time, and that's how long that they have suffered. And I have to imagine that at some point, as, as they feel forgotten, they also must have felt, they also must have forgotten God. Right? But the, that's how the story of, of the Exodus starts. And so what happens is in a result of, of Pharaoh being like, hey, this, this is a really big group of people. And if they all turned against us at one time, we'd be in a lot of trouble. He says, OK, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell all the midwives that if if the Hebrew women give birth and it's a boy, kill it. Because we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stunt the growth of, of, uh, of this mighty uh, group of people, right? And so, and so the midwives, they, they don't do that. They fear, they fear the Lord. They let, they let the sons be born. And, and Pharaoh's like, hey, what happened? And they were like, oh, man, we got there and they were already born. I don't know what to tell you, brother. And so he says, okay, you want to skirt around my rules? Go back and throw them in the river. They're already born. That's fine. Go throw them in the Nile. Every male. And so that's what they did. The firstborn, of, the firstborn male of every household was thrown into the Nile, except one. His name was Moses. He was put in a basket. The basket was sealed with, with bitumen, which, remember, that was what they built the Tower of Babel out of, right? That was a, a tar-like substance. And, and he was put in the river. So technically he was thrown in the river. I don't know how, you know. Being technically right is the best kind of right, right? Uh, and so he, he gets put in the river and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And it just says that the baby is crying. So she takes him into his household, into her household. And what happens is God begins to grow the deliverer, the, the person that he's going to use to deliver Egypt from or deliver Israel from Egypt. God begins to grow him up in Pharaoh's own house, right under Pharaoh's nose. Well, what happens is Moses grows up. And I don't know if it happened like it did in the Prince of Egypt, the movie, right? The movie's like six days long, uh, right? I don't know if it happens like that, but Moses finds out that he is, a, he is a Hebrew, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, so he kills the Egyptian. Because he's like, hey, you've beaten my people. Well, the problem with that is, that ain't necessarily legal, right? <laughs> Even in Egypt. And so what happens is he sees, he sees two Hebrews fighting and he goes over there and he says, hey, guys, we shouldn't be fighting against each other. Y'all should split this up. And one of them says, well, who appointed you a judge over me? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And Moses is like, oh, you saw that, huh? So Moses flees Egypt and he goes to a place called Midian. He does some work. He marries a woman there and and he's kind of living life. And, and maybe he thinks at that point, the whole thing with Egypt and the basket and Pharaoh's house, maybe that's all done. But then one day he notices that there's a bush that's on fire. Now that may not be too weird, right? Sometimes even in Louisiana, like the middle of the interstate catches on fire. Like that's not necessarily strange. But this bush isn't being consumed. And then the bush calls out to him and says, Moses, Moses. And, and Moses' first response is, is, is here I am, which is, which is a pretty, pretty good response. But we're going to see that response doesn't necessarily last long. But he says, here I am. And he turns and he sees this bush. And this bush is, is, is burning, but it, it's not consumed. And it's the Lord. It's a picture of the Lord. Again, a picture of the Lord's sovereignty. 
right? Because it's a, it's a picture of the Lord that he does not need anything, that he, he can be a fire in the bush and the bush not be consumed because, because typically fire needs fuel to consume, to continue to exist. And the Lord is saying, I don't. I don't need anything. I am, I am self-existing. My, my creation bends to my will. If I willed this bush to burn for eternity, it would and it would never be consumed. He's in, and, and what we find out is, is God is holy as he tells Moses, don't come here. Don't come near me just yet. Take, take your sandals off for this is holy ground. My mere presence has, has purified this area. And so Moses says, I'm here, Lord. What, what you got for me? And this is what God tells him. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Remember, that's the formula that God had been building kind of all throughout, um, all throughout Genesis. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. A common response, right? Because when we're, when we're right up against the Almighty, our sinfulness becomes plain to us. And in, and in uh, chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, um, the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the opposition with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I've always thought this, but this is one of the sweetest passages in all of Scripture. And it may sound weird because we're not slaves in Egypt, but listen. These people are enslaved. They're suffering, Right? They cry out to God, and God responds with, I've heard my people. I know their suffering. I've seen their suffering. I will deliver them. All of those elements have to be there in order for, God, for, for us to have any real hope in God. If God was like, I see your suffering, but I can't do nothing about it, that doesn't really help right? Hey, uh, I could have done something about it, but your boy hard of hearing didn't hear nothing. Again, nothing. Hey, hey, I heard about your suffering. I saw that you were suffering, and, and, and I could even do something about it, but I just don't want to, right? It's, it's the complete formula. I saw it. I heard it. I care. I know I am with you. I'm going to do something about it, and we can believe him. Why? Because He's sovereign. In your suffering, you can know that you can still find hope, you can still find faith, you can still find happiness, regardless of what you're suffering, because the one greater than anything we can experience is with us. And though he may choose, and in this case he chose to deliver them, he may not choose. And there was many generations of slaves who died in Egypt, who probably prayed to God their, their entire lives, and he did not deliver that generation. But he is faithful. He does deliver, and that's what we get to see here. Now, what's interesting is Moses' response, right? He was, he was SpongeBob at first. He was like, I'm here. Let's go. What you got for me? And he says, I'm going to deliver all my people out of Egypt, and I need you to go talk to Pharaoh. And Moses says, oh, boy. Well, listen, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I killed a dude back in Egypt. And uh, I can't really go back there. Not only that, but Pharaoh, he's a big boy. He don't listen to little guys like me. And so, and so Moses begins to raise some concerns, and, and, God, and God answers them, right? First, he says, well, who am I? And God's answer is really great because he doesn't even address who Moses is. He doesn't try to build him up. Hey, man, you're great. You're awesome. You should go. He just says, doesn't matter. I will be with you. It doesn't matter who you are because who I am. Right. And, and then Moses says, uh, well, well, w what is your name? So I can tell them who sent me. And God gives him his name, which we'll go to in more detail in just a minute. And God tells him, God says, I am who I am. OK, you go tell him 
that, that, that I am who I am sent you, that Yahweh sent you, and, and I am the God, right? I'm the God that, that they all heard about, a God of uh, Isaac and Jacob and Abraham, and, and you go tell them that's who sent you. Okay, um, maybe they won't believe me. And God's like, listen, brother, all right. Put your staff on the ground. Okay, put staff on the ground. It turns into a snake. And this startles Moses. He didn't expect that because he takes off running. He comes back, he picks up the snake, turns back into a staff. So he says, uh, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. I ain't gonna lie. He said, okay. He said, look at your hand. He looks at his hand. His hand is full of leprosy. He says, now put your hand in your cloak. He puts his hand in his cloak, takes it back out, his hand's fine. He says, oh, okay, pretty cool trick. He said, he said here's some water from the Nile. He said, he said, turn it into blood. So he turns it into blood. And what God is showing him is he was saying, I have control over everything. I control man and beast. I control disease. I control creation. I control everything. And Moses says, well, I'm not eloquent. I talk a little bit slow. God said, and God says, who do you think made your mouth? I did. And so Moses, I feel like maybe, maybe kind of in a corner says, bro, can you just send somebody else? Like, like at the end of the day, I don't got any more excuses, but I still don't really want to do it. Can you just send someone else? And it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And Moses is like, fine, Aaron, I know Aaron, that dude talk all the time. Tell Aaron everything I told you. Get Aaron to go with you, and he's going to be, and he's going to talk. But you're still going to go. And that's what happens. That's where the story kind of, kind of continues, right? But, but we still have this personal name of God. There's still, still Yahweh, which actually does not translate to I am. God's name is, is Yahweh. It is not I am, right? And, 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 and the reason why those two things are so closely related is because they have the exact same consonant letters, but, but we don't really translate the name Yahweh, but it, here's, here's some things that it means, right? It is, it is a statement, again, of God's sovereignty, and, and what it is, it's a perpetual I am. It's kind of like when Jesus says, when Abraham was, I am, and that is because God is present in the past. He is present, well, in the present, and he is present in the future, so he's like, no matter what, I am. I am constant, I am all the time, and, and I am, I have been, I will be, I am the one who is uncaused. I am the one who will always be. I am the only thing that will always be. You tell them the uncaused one sent you, and his name is Yahweh. And so he says, okay. We'll go. Aaron will go. I'll go. We got Yahweh on our side. We got the uncaused one on our side. And in and, uh, and chapter 4, verse 21, God gives them, uh, God gives them some encouragement. And, and I wanted to put this in here because a lot of us are going to struggle with it, and that's okay. Just, just ask your home group leaders, and they'll explain it perfectly. <laughs> it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, right? He's agreed to go back to Egypt. See, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You're going to have to struggle with that. He tells Moses and Aaron, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm God Almighty. I'm going to do all these things, but people are going to be let go. And he's like, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he doesn't let the people go. And that's interesting, right? Because he's, he's telling you basically, hey, go do this mission for me, and then I'm going to do something specifically to prevent you from getting the mission. And that should bother some of us, right? Some of us it doesn't, but some of us it does. It's like, well, how can God kind of be responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart and him not letting his people go and sending the ten plagues upon Egypt because Pharaoh won't let him go and he's the one causing him to not let him go? Yeah, that, that divine struggle between God being sovereign but man being responsible, right? I don't have the answer for you. Ask your home group leader. But anyway, this is, this is something that we have to go because also several times throughout the plagues it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And sometimes it just says that his heart was hardened and it doesn't tell us who did it. But read that, right? Struggle with that. Demand answers from Scripture. How does that work? 
But here's what we do know. This is a statement, again, that God is saying, I am in control. Even of Pharaoh's heart, I am in control. I have things to accomplish. You will be the ones whom through I accomplish it through. So Moses and Aaron go to Egypt. They, they, tell, uh, they tell the people of Israel everything that, uh, that, that they were told to tell him, right? He goes and he does the thing with the leprous and the, and, and the staff and, 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 and the blood. And so the people of Israel believe him. And they're like, oh, great. God has finally spoken to us. They believed him. And he says that they worshiped. Pharaoh does not like this. Pharaoh, they, they, they go to Pharaoh and, and they tell Pharaoh kind of all the same stuff. Hey, let my people go. We need to go three days journey out into the wilderness. We need to sacrifice to the Lord and this, that, and the other. And Pharaoh refuses and he says, as a matter of fact, since y'all got all this free time on your hands to be taking vacays out into the wilderness, I'm not going to provide y'all with straw anymore for you to make your bricks. You got to gather your own straw. Now, that was, that was half the task of making bricks, was gathering the straw, putting it in the mud, shaping the bricks, and then letting the sun dry it out. And what he said was, you still have to make the same number of bricks, but you don't, I'm not going to provide you with the material anymore. You have to gather the material and make the bricks, but still, in the same amount of time, make the same amount of bricks. And that's a really interesting development, because it says that the hardships from this broke Israel's spirits. The interesting thing about it is, I bet they expected things to get better, not worse. I bet when Moses came and said, I spoke to Yahweh, that's his name, this is who he is, he's going to take everybody up out of this place. They were like, things are going to get better. 400 years of slavery, and, and, and the hardest part is behind us. And actually things got harder. Their suffering increased. What about in your Christian walk? You've experienced that? There's no, there's no, there's no promise in Scripture that becoming a Christian is going to make your life easier, right? And, and, and in many respects, it may very well make it harder. I remember the first couple of years of my marriage, they were just really easy. And people are like, yeah, that's the honeymoon phase. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. But, but they were really easy, mainly for one reason. Cassie and I just kind of ignored each other's sin. And what happened was we were challenged by our local church to deepen our marriage and, and to talk about things uh, that, that we needed to talk about that were there, that were just kind of being ignored. And what Cassie and I kind of described the, about the three years after that is a really difficult time in our marriage. Not because we didn't like each other anymore, not because the honeymoon phase wore off and we didn't we realized that maybe we made a bad decision, but because we attempted to actually love each other with the with with Christian love, right? We attempted to actually deal with things and, and actually our lives became more difficult. The more we tried to implement Christianity, the more we tried to implement Jesus, the harder things got. And that's kind of what they're experiencing here. The the, the, the question is through that through that tempering. You know, have you experienced that? Has, has, a, has a, uh, a more purified, stronger faith grown out of that in your life? And if so, can you give some encouragement to others who are in that phase? Can you tell them, right, that the promises of, of Jesus, the promises of God, they're true. You've seen them. And Moses goes back to the people of Israel, and, and, and they're broken, right? And, and he tells them all the, he, he, reiterate, he reiterates the, the promises to God to him again. And there's seven promises in, in chapter 6, and I didn't put them up on the screen or anything, but, but kind of make that note. There's seven promises. They all start with, I will, where God says, I will bring you out of the land of Egypt. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land, and I will give you that land as your possession, just like I promised promised and the people of Israel they didn't even listen to Moses like I said their spirits were broken we don't see any of that man we gotta go collect some straw we don't got time to be talking to you you got us in trouble so then Moses is commanded by God to start announcing 
these plagues on Israel, right? We all know about the ten plagues. I mean, the plagues on Egypt, my bad, not on Israel. Uh, and we all kind of know about the ten plagues, right? We've, we've seen the movie, you know, we got, we got frogs, we got boils, we got, right? And we're, we're going to kind of loosely uh, kind of go through them here. But, but these plagues, they may seem a bit random for us. Like, like the Lord's like, hey, I'm going to make a gang load of frogs come up out of the river. And people are like, oh, okay. Like that sounds minorly inconvenient, but um, okay. But what's happening is, is what God is doing is he is, he's showing Pharaoh specifically, but everyone in Egypt, he's putting on display his power specifically over every single one of their gods. Right? The Egyptians believed that they were gods that kind of, that kind of controlled every part of their day-to-day life. And what God is showing with each plague is your gods don't control anything and I control everything. And so, and so the, each, each plague kind of follows a similar pattern where Moses goes and, and gives a warning. He doesn't always give a warning, but on most of them he does. There's typically a conversation with Pharaoh where, Pharaoh, where sometimes Pharaoh's like, all right, I get it, I'll let your people go, and then he doesn't. And sometimes he's like, ah, get out of here, I don't believe you. Right? And so, and so we, we kind of loosely follow this pattern. And, and first, uh, Pharaoh, uh, or Moses says, if, if you don't let my people go, Speaking as though he is God, right? It's, Thus saith the Lord, if you do not let my people go, I'm going to turn the entire Nile into blood. And so he does that. He strikes the Nile. The Nile is turned to blood. And, and Pharaoh's like, well, I got a couple magicians. They know some magic too. So he calls them and he's like, can you turn water into blood? And they do. Typically, this is believed to be like they have some kind of like trickery, you know, like magicians do today. It's all an illusion. But they do. So, so uh, Pharaoh's like, eh, my guys, my guys can do the same thing you know, your guy can do, so have a good day. And it says, for seven days, the Nile was turned to blood. All the fish in it died. It stank as you believe it would, and they could not use any water out of the Nile, for it was, it was blood, right? And that was a lifeline of, of Egypt. And this, and this was believed, or this is, is traditionally believed, to, to counteract uh, the Egyptian god, Happy, H-I-P-I, which was believed to be God of the Nile, right? Because if, if their God was real and if their God was powerful, couldn't their God just turn it back to water? And the answer was no. Their God couldn't do anything. So what happens is, is after seven days, uh, the Nile goes back uh, to, to what it was before and Moses comes back and says, hey, hey man, uh, you, you let my people go or, or, or not? Nah? And, and Pharaoh's like, mm, I'm not really thinking so. He's like, okay, well then I'm going to cause frogs to come up out of the Nile, out of your canals, out of all your ponds. And, and frogs, man, they're going to be everywhere, brother. When I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. They're going to be in your oven. They're going to be in your bowls. They're going to be uh, in your socks when you wake up. They're going to be in your bed. And he's like, okay, well, it, magicians, magicians, magicians come back out. And he's like, hey, can you produce some frogs? And they're like, yeah, we can produce some frogs. And he's like, oh, okay, well then, run along. We're done here, right? And that was believed, that was traditionally believed to, to be a counter to the Egyptian god Heket, which is actually the goddess of fertility, but often depicted as a, as a frog. And God's like, I control, I control the frogs, not you, man. I control these things. So... Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh kind of maybe starts to get the point a little bit, and Moses comes back and says, uh, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not really into that. And he says, okay, then I'm going to cause gnats. I'm going to cause gnats to come up, and they're going to cover everything. It's going to be super annoying, okay? Because you ever had like one gnat? Yeah, it says that they were covered. Man and beast, they're covered in gnats constantly. And it says that, that he turned the dust of the earth into gnats. And this is traditionally believed to counter the god Geb, who was the god of the earth, right? Because, because I imagine, you know, kind of Moses' intention would be like, hey, if you worship the god of the earth and we turn the earth into gnats, then your god should be able to counteract that. But where's your boy? He's not around. So, so this is the first time 
that, that Pharaoh's like, all right, listen, maybe, maybe we can strike some kind of deal because his, his magicians, right, like they, they can't produce gnats. And so he's like, oh, we've kind of moved out of my comfort zone now. My dudes can't do what your dude is doing. So, so uh, whew, man, with the frogs, he, he, had, he had already kind of promised them to let them go and then didn't. And so he's like, hey, can you, can you get rid of the gnats? Like, let, let, let's do that. Let's get rid of the gnats. Let's come back. Let's talk. God gets rid of the gnats. They come back. They talk. Moses comes back and gives Pharaoh a warning. Again, Pharaoh ignores it, and he says, I'm going to cause flies. Not just gnats, but flies. I'm going to cause hordes and swarms of flies to come onto all of Egypt, and they're going to cover, again, everybody, man and beast. And, and this time, as the, as the plagues ramp up in scope and, and destruction, this time the flies are actually going to cause some destruction. Not just inconvenience, not just uncomfortable, they're going to cause some destruction. Pharaoh tries to negotiate. Fine, go sacrifice to your God, but don't leave to do it. Do it here in the land. As Pharaoh struggles to maintain control of this negotiation, no dice though. After the flies leave, Moses comes back and says, uh, you kind of get the point, Pharaoh, right? Like, I ain't, I'm not here to bring you good news. If you don't let my people go, we're gonna, God's going to kill all the livestock in all of Egypt. That's your food, brother. You might want to think about this. Doesn't do anything, right? There's a, there's a goddess of protection in Egypt who's typically represented as a cow, and God's like, I'm going to kill all the cows. You have no protection. These gods provide you no protection. So it says all the cows, horses, donkeys, camels, everything dead in the field. Now what's interesting is God starts to draw a distinction between Egypt and in Israel, as their livestock did not die. Their livestock, good and well. All the livestock of Egypt, dead. And, and God's building. He's building up, right? Throughout this whole time, he's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's hardening his heart. But God's plan is being accomplished. He comes back and he says, okay. Moses says, okay, you're going to let my people go? And he says, no, not really into that, even after all these plagues. And he said, then the boils and sores are going to cover everyone's bodies. And it says, and Scripture tells us that this was so painful that, that the servants that Pharaoh had couldn't even stand up, for standing up was, was too painful because of the boils and the sores. And, and there was a god in Egypt, uh, Isis, which means something a little bit different now, um, and she was the goddess of medicine and of healing. So they could pray to their god, right, heal us, but their god can't do anything. Still, Pharaoh doesn't listen. So Moses comes back and says, I'm going to cause hail to fall on everything in Egypt. A hailstorm like you have never seen before. And God takes a bit of a different approach with this one where he tells Pharaoh uh, exactly what he is doing. And he tells Pharaoh why he is doing it. And he tells Pharaoh how to avoid it. And so in, in chapter 7, verse 13, this is what the Lord said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go uh, that they serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me and all the earth. So that's what the Lord's trying to communicate to this man. There's no one like me, brother. None of your gods can do anything against me and my people. For by now, I could, I could have put you out. I could have, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. But you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them know, will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such that has never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast in the field that is not brought home will die. God tells him. God reveals. God puts his card on the table. Listen. 
I'm sending these plagues so that everyone on the face of this planet will know that there is none like me. There's none as powerful as me and that I have control over everything. And you try to stand against me and you try to stand against my people. This ain't going to work out for you, homie. So hell falls. Everything left in the field uh, is killed. Servants that are left in the field, they're killed. Beasts are killed. Plants are killed. Egypt has got to be running out of food at this point because they don't have meat. Now they don't have plants. And Moses shows up and says, dude, you're still not repenting. I'm going to send Lord, I'm going to send uh, swarms of locusts. Locusts come. They eat everything that, that the hail didn't kill. It says that they eat every green plant in all of Egypt. The dude still is not repentant. So he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make it pitch black in all of Egypt for three days. You won't even be able to see one another. Matter of fact, during these three days, the Egyptians don't even get out of bed because there's no point. They can't see anything. And, and what God is doing there is, is the Egyptians, they worshiped one God above all the other gods, and that was the God of the sun that was raw. And what, and what, uh, what, um, God, what, what Yahweh is saying here is, is, listen, your greatest God, the God of the sun, the God of day, the God of the, God of the seasons, guess what? He is known. I will blot him out. With a sentence from my mouth, I will blot him out. And you will be in nothing but darkness. Again, Israel has been continued to be kind of, uh, kind of separated from these. So it said in, Israel, in Israel's camps, they had light. But in all of Egypt, darkness. Moses comes back and says, hey man, listen. We got one more plague, right? This is 9 out of 10. We're about to go 10 out of 10. We got one more plague. God knows that you came. And you threw all the firstborn of, of Israel into the river. Listen, homie, you don't let my people go. God's going to take the firstborn of every man and beast in all of Egypt. And so before, before that play kind of goes, and, and the God that that kind of interacts is actually Pharaoh himself, who was believed to be a God, and God will strike him specifically, strike his son specifically. And then before God actually does that, in chapter 12, we get a description of what is called the Passover, right? And we, and we read that scripture earlier today. I read that scripture, so I'm not going to read it for you again. But, but God go, tells Moses, hey, go tell Israel, listen up. The plagues, they're about to be maxed out. You, you're about to be let go. And you're not only just going to be let go, they're going to give you gold, they're going to give you silver, they're going to say anything you want, please get out of here and you will be delivered from Egypt. You will be delivered from Pharaoh, but here's what you need to do first. Take a lamb, a spotless lamb, a mature male lamb. Spend four days making sure that bad boy is spotless. And on the appointed day, kill that lamb. Take its blood and put it on your doorpost. When someone that Scripture calls the destroyer, not somebody I'm trying to tangle with, comes through Egypt, if they see the blood on your doorpost, they will pass over your household. For you have been covered by the blood of the lamb. And some of y'all are like, I know that phrase. And that's what happens. Chapter 12, starting in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captives who were in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in night. Uh, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Aaron, uh, he summoned Moses and Aaron uh, by night and said, Up, go out from my people, both you and your people. Go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. The bless me also is really interesting, but I'm not really going to go into that. And the Egyptians, they got up and they left. 
And as they were leaving, they asked, they asked the, the Egyptians, hey, can we have some gold? Can we have some silver? Can we put this on our kids? Can we put this on us? Which is, which is kind of strange, but at the same time, they're due 400 years of wages. So, I mean, I'm, you know. And so, and so it says that they, they plundered the Egyptians on the way out. And that is something that a conquering army does, right? When they have defeated their enemy. But on that night, notice a few things here. Notice a few things about that Passover that we talked about. Notice a few things about, about why the destroyer, why the Lord, sometimes called the angel of death, why he passed over certain houses, right? Those who were spared were not spared simply because they belonged to Israel and not to Egypt, as with the plagues, right? Like they had light while Egypt had darkness because they belonged to Israel, right? But that's not the case here. They were spared based on whether or not they had blood on their doorstep. Even if someone belonged to Israel, but they did not heed the warning of the Lord and did not kill the lamb and was not covered by the blood of the lamb, they would have been killed also. God's provision was simple, right? Get a lamb, examine it for four days, make sure it's good to go, kill it, put the blood on your doorstep, and that's, that's, that's the meaning. That's why they were spared, right? They were not spared because Israel's sons were better in and of themselves than Egypt's sons. They were spared because they were covered by the blood of the Lamb. Is this starting to sound familiar? Exodus is not pointing us to itself. Exodus is pointing us to Christ, the greater and perfect Passover Lamb. Just as Israel stood exposed to God's wrath on the night of the, ten, uh, of the tenth plague for their sin, because we find out later, the whole time they were in Israel, they adopted, the, uh, the whole time they were in Egypt, they adopted Egypt's gods, they worshipped idols, and, and, and they felt like God had forgotten them, and, and, and they had forgotten God, right? And so they stood exposed on the, on the, uh, on the night of the tenth plague. They, they were exposed to God's wrath, so as we are all exposed to God's wrath. For our sin. For right? We, we, we know those familiar passages. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And apart from some kind of provision, every last one of us is, gonna, is, is going to die and, and, and perish eternally due to God being holy and just. But we got a feast in chapter 2, right? We got but God. Right? That's, that's our human condition. But God, being rich in mercy, he, he devised a way for him to maintain his, just, his justness, his justice, and also show us mercy. And what that comes is, is through salvation, through, through a substitute. Just as, just as the Lord passed over the households of Israel because of the blood of the Lamb, the Lord also passes over us if we are covered by the blood of Christ. The Passover was meant to paint that picture it wasn't the real thing, but it pointed to the real thing, and it points us to the gospel, and it points us to Christ as our true substitute. And that's why when John the Baptist sees, uh, sees Jesus in, in John chapter 1, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the greater and more perfect Passover Lamb. But this time, God didn't even ask us to provide the Lamb. God provided the Lamb. And this lamb was no mere animal. He was fully God and he was fully man like us in every way except, as Hebrew tells us, without sin. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the Old Testament, specifically the Passover lamb, as he was a mature male. None of his bones were broken, which I didn't go over that part, but it was, it's in Exodus. None of his bones should be broken. That he was thoroughly examined. He was found spotless, and he was slain for our sins. We are covered by his blood, and we boast because we have been redeemed. Uh, as, uh, as Peter tells us, we boast because, uh, because we have been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
who was a lamb without spot or blemish. This is what Paul says when he calls Christ our Passover lamb. Our salvation comes through his substitution. That's why God says to us, when I see the blood, I will pass over you just as he passed over Israel and Egypt thousands of years ago. And that's really good news for anybody in here, especially those who have been covered by the blood already. That's what Exodus points us to. The question to you is, are you covered by the blood of Christ? Throughout this message, what has been building up in your heart? Is it, is it, is it rejoicing? Is it thank God that, it, that, that I've experienced this? I'm, is it gratitude towards God's actions toward a sinful man or a sinful woman? Or is it fear? Is it fear that you are not covered by the blood? That you have not put your trust in Christ? Either way, today we can rejoice for the, for the saved that this has happened to them and that they have security in their salvation and for the lost that today you can be saved. I encourage you, either way you feel, say something, do something, respond in worship or respond in, in, in giving your life to Christ and, and being covered by the blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we are thankful. Lord, we're thankful for the sacrifice that you provided in Egypt. Even though we, we, we are not Israelites, we are not in, in slavery, Lord, but it, it points us, Lord, to, to Jesus. It points us, Lord, to, to the Passover lamb that does cover us today, not the one that had to be sacrificed every year to kind of be renewed, but the Lord, the one that was sacrificed once and for all and for anyone. Lord, I pray today that you move in people's hearts, that you reveal to them their, their true, the true nature of their relationship to you, whether it is non-existent, whether it is, it is broken, or whether it's on fire, Lord, and, and they respond in turn, Lord, to worship you regardless of what that is. Some of us maybe for the first time, and some of us as a familiar day-in, day-out practice that we enjoy. Lord, I pray that you, you continue to walk us through your entire word, Lord, the entire Bible, and continue to, to point us back to Christ and how, and how valuable and how, how insurmountably uh, uh, glorious he is. And Lord, we're thankful for all the things that you've already done and our expectation for you to do even more. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.